Uh, Lord, we're grateful now to uh, open your word. Uh, We have read it. We have sung of it. uh, We have uh, set our hearts to focus on Christ. And now we pray that your spirit would take uh, the things that we're going to read and talk about and he would do his transforming work in our hearts. Father, every single one of us today needs to hear from you and needs to have your grace reigning and ruling and changing and encouraging and equipping and convicting and renewing our hearts today. So would you do that now, that we might look more like Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, How many of you have little children in the home? How many of you have little grandchildren? Great-grandchildren? Okay. Uh, How many of you know a short person somewhere? Uh, If you do, you'll appreciate this. Uh, Paul Tripp tells a story about his son Justin when he was four years old who came up one day and uh, sat down and Paul Paul Tripp recounts the conversation. Daddy, when I grow up, I want to be a lion, he said. Well, who wouldn't, I thought, with all that King of the Jungle stuff we hear so much about. Uh, Just a footnote to that. If Katie Hunholtz were here, she would remind us that lions don't actually live in the jungle. So that's for free. But anyway, um, uh, they don't. Uh, So his mother had been reading him a book about animals of Africa, and little Justin was enthralled. He, He was in that time of life when you come across a book that you want to read it over and over and over again. Any parents weary of that stage yet? Uh, after at least 500 readings, he was completely settled on what he wanted to do with his future. He wanted to be a lion. After he shared why he had chosen this future at the top of the feline world, I launched into a little lesson on biblical anthropology. He sat wide-eyed and attentive as I laboriously attempted to help him to understand the doctrine of creation and its specific implications for identity of human beings. He seemed interested as I did everything I could to distinguish animals from people. And as I droned on, I noticed that he was getting fidgety and was no longer looking at me with rapt attention, but I thought he was still taking it all in. So I wrapped up my identity of human beings monologue and asked him if he understood what his daddy was trying to say. Well, he looked up at me quite confidently and said, Yes, I do, Daddy. When I grow up, I'm going to be a giraffe. So I ended my failed attempt at early childhood theological education, gave him a big hug, and off he ran. Now, it's interesting because for some reason, children are constantly thinking about identity. And if you have children in your home or grandchildren or great-grandchildren or you have little kids on your street or whatever, you know this. They are always thinking about what they want to be like when they grow up and who they are and who they want to be. And that's why children are into sports heroes and movie stars and music icons. And then we grow up, don't we? And we adults probably don't think about identity as much as our short person counterparts. But if you think about it, identity is important. Identity is, is really just how you think about yourself. How we, and, and how we think about ourselves profoundly affects our lives. And I'll prove this to you. Who has the greatest influence on your life? Well, you do. Right? You do. You have the most profound influence on your life. And we probably don't think about identity much, but the reality is identity issues are all over our lives. 
the effect of how we think about ourselves in life we see and experience every day. Think of, think of all of the ways that on a day-to-day basis we try to define ourselves. I mean, just think of some of those things. We do that when we fail, don't we? We do that when we succeed. We do that when we're struggling with uncertainty, and, and we do that when we're very confident. We, we demonstrate identity in the loss of things, the loss of a friend, the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse. And we begin to think about, who, who are we? Uh, we see this when change happens. How do you guys do with change? How are you doing with change, by the way? Do you know God is constantly changing your life and my life on purpose? And that causes us to think about ourselves and who are we defining ourselves and are we defining ourselves based on things that God is constantly changing. We realize identity issues when we feel worthless and unloved and even hated. We deal with identity issues when we think about our weight, when we think about diet, when we think about fitness and health and exercise. We, we think about our identity in terms of our performance and achievement. We, we demonstrate identity when we're devastated by criticism. We demonstrate identity when we struggle to fit in, when, we, when we're involved in cliques or we want to be involved in cliques. We demonstrate identity in status, the clothes we buy, the possessions we acquire. We, we deal with identity in retirement, right? Maybe we got to retirement, we're like, man, I'm here. Or maybe we get to retirement and we look back and we say, man, I wish I had done some things differently. And I deal with regret. You want to see identity? Go to a sporting event. I, I think everything you need to know about fallen human beings you can find by going to a college football game. I mean, you really can you know, why does a grown man paint his body blue and dress up like it's Halloween and travel all over the country with front row 50-yard line tickets to make a fool of himself on national TV? It's identity showing up, isn't it? It's identity. Well, I hate, I hate to be the one to break it to you, but you have an identity problem. And so do I. The good news though, is at its core, the Bible is about identity, isn't it? The Bible is about your identity, who you are, and how you think about yourself. And specifically, the Bible highlights, you need to get this now, how a believer's union with Jesus is the key to a Christian's identity. And what I want to do this morning is I want to, I want to try to connect those things uh, in your minds. I want to try to connect your identity with what Jesus is, did, and his union that we have with him and try to bring those together in a way that will help us to understand their relationship and hopefully we walk out more confident of an identity in Christ. So the way we're going to do that is I want to ask and try to answer three questions for you, okay? So if you have an, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, an outline, if you want to follow along there in your bulletin, you can pull it out at this time. And, and uh, let's turn, first of all, to the very beginning, a very good place to start, right? Genesis chapter 1. And I want to ask a, uh, th- this initial question that'll, that'll get us moving along the, the right lines here. What is the relationship be I- between identity and union? What's the relationship between identity and union? Okay, we're trying to connect those two things, and we need to see this. Now, we're going to see this in Genesis chapter 1 in the creation week. Speaking of animals, right? Genesis chapter 1. 
And we're not going to talk about God's creation of the animals, though, specifically, not giraffes and lions. We're going to look at day six of creation as God is creating the universe in six normal days. And the highlight, as you know, of, of God's creation in that week was his creation of people. So let's look at those verses. I, I know you're familiar with these, but let's look at them again in our Bibles. And I want to start unpacking from these verses the implications for identity. Okay? That's what we're going to do. So look at chapter 1, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Okay, so, so what is the relationship between identity and union? What do we learn from this verse? Okay, so here, here's the first big idea here, okay? Identity is established in your union and my union and every human being's union with the Creator. Okay, that's what we learn here. Identity is established in union with the Creator. Identity of human beings comes from the special creation of God who made people in His image for a relationship with Him. Right? That's, that's what we see here. In fact, the, the divine commentary, just in case we missed it, the divine commentary on these verses is Colossians chapter 1. And you remember what Paul says, you don't need to turn there, you know this. What Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 is that all things have been made by Jesus and for Jesus, right? That's what he says. All things have been made by him and for him. And you'll notice in our text here, that God made human beings, both male and female, in his image and likeness. Now, now you need to understand what that means. The, the best way I can try to describe image and likeness is this. You were made to be a mirror. You're made to be a mirror. A reflection of who God is and what he's like. When, when you're made in the image and likeness of God, God's design is that you would reflect his character and his glory and his attributes, that, that you would love because God loves, right? You, you would be committed to righteousness because God is righteousness. You would be full of compassion and mercy because God is full of compassion. You get the idea. You are a divinely created mirror designed to reflect the glory and character of God. Okay. Now, if, if you're following that, you understand then where this whole thing of identity comes from. Because I, identity follows what we are looking to, right? That what you're going to reflect as a mirror is what you're looking at, what you esteem, what you love, what you value, and ultimately what you worship. And, and, and again, uh, this is where children are such a great example of this, right? You don't have to learn identity. God already hardwired you for identity. And we see this. Kids do this every day, don't they? They latch on to a sports figure. They, they latch on to a music icon. They, they latch on to, to uh, some person they saw on a Netflix TV show. And then they want to be like that. And you'll notice what happens when our children latch on to somebody that they want to be like, that they love, that they, they watch all the time, they listen to all the time. They, they get... They still put posters up in their room, and maybe that was just what I did when I was a kid. But, right, what do they do? They become, they, they start to take on their identity, don't they, of their hero. 
And that's the point. When God designed us as image bearers, as mirrors, as we love God, as we esteem Him, as we value Him, as we worship Him, as we think about Him, we begin to take on that identity. And that's the point. We're, we're mirrors. We are image bearers made to reflect God. And that reflection of God is our identity. We will reflect what we love, what we value, what we esteem, and what we worship. And that, that really helps us understand what identity really is. Okay, so here you go. Identity is simply how I think about myself in light of what I love, value, esteem, and worship. That's it. Identity is simply how you think about yourself in light of what you love, in light of what you esteem, in light of what you value, in light of what you worship. That's, that's identity. Okay. Now, now, just a footnote because we're going to come back to this, but I want I want to throw this out as a hint. Okay. Notice the the close association that we've seen here between identity and worship. You need to remember that. Okay. There, there's a connection here between identity and worship. We'll come back to that when we get to Romans in a moment. Okay. So people were made in the image of God, and thus people were created for an identity that was designed. Listen, people were made for an identity. To be found in God alone. Are you with me? This making sense? Nod your head. So you, okay, good. All right. Okay. So 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 get this. Primary identity is based on a relationship with God, on a union with Him, and, and that's helpful. Identity is always based on some sort of association, some sort of union, some sort of relationship, and you know that because because the crazy midlife guy who's painted blue for his team, sitting at the 50-yard line, what's he doing? He, he he's adopted an identity based on an association with what? His sports team. Okay. Do I need to ask you if you're an Aggie today? Or a UT Horn, Longhorn? Any USC Trojans here? I didn't think so. Okay. Um, it's always, identity is always about association. It's always about union. That, that's the way God designed it. Now, now, if you're following me, you'll recognize this. Identity was never meant to function apart from a relationship with God. That's what we see here. God's design is that identity functions in relationship with God. People are hardwired as image bearers, made to worship God and reflect His glory, and this relationship is the lens of human identity. The trajectory of identity, listen very closely, the trajectory of identity, where identity focuses, was designed to be upward. Identity was never designed to be inward. It was never designed to be outward in a sports team or what that person thinks about me. Identity was designed, the trajectory of identity was designed to be upward to focus on and latch on to God as the source of identity. People were not designed to look inside of themselves. They were made to look up to God who gives them identity and he designs them. Get this again. He designs them to be a spiritual mirror who would reflect his glory. But notice this, God rigged it. He rigged it because even if you look inside of yourself for identity, if you're made to be a reflection of God, if you're made to be an image bearer, when you look inside yourself, what are you supposed to see? Him. You got it? Okay, so that's identity, okay? Now, now notice, if we look at Genesis, there's all sorts of secondary identities in this text, isn't there? Like, for example, uh, 
says here male and female in our verse, verse 27. That's a secondary identity, right? Verse 28, they are to rule over creation. Chapter 2, verse 15, Adam is called to be the garden tender. Chapter 2, verse 18, Eve is called to be the helper and Adam is called to be the leader. So there's all these other secondary identities and those are important. But all of those other identities, male, female, our roles in the home, our roles in vocation, those all come under and are subservient to our main primary identity, which is found in God alone. It's a vertical identity, not a horizontal identity. Adam's identity is not found in his wife, his vocation in the garden, his stewardship over creation, his performance in naming the animals, his looks, his athletic ability, or anything else. It's found in his relationship with God. Now, I want you to remember this. Whenever you minister to somebody else, whether it's an Awana cubby, whether it's your neighbor who needs Jesus, whether it's a co-worker whose spouse was just diagnosed with cancer, I want you to remember this. You are coming alongside a fellow image bearer. You are coming alongside the unique creation of God, and that person was made by Jesus for relationship with Jesus, and that ought to guide and direct how we minister to them. People are not a product of their education. They are not a cosmic accident. They are not their performance. They are not their genetics. They are not their upbringing. They are not their education. They are the unique creation of a sovereign God who made them for himself. So remember this. All conversations about identity have to start in Genesis 1. People made by God and for God as they reflect his glory in their lives. Listen to Calvin. Man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation then to look at himself. You see that? You've got to understand your relationship as being created in the image of God. Okay? So, so that's identity established. Okay? It's established in union. God designed identity to be a part of how he made us in terms of creation. Okay, so let's answer a second question now, okay? A second question. What causes identity problems? What causes identity problems? Well, just turn the page to Genesis chapter 3. You still with me? You with me? Okay, good. Um, What causes identity problems? All those things, right? Why? Can I just get really personal with you? Why do you get up and look in the mirror and are disappointed every day with yourself? Why do you do that? Why, when you are successful in something as profound as putting flowers in your garden one morning or achieving your retirement dreams and successes, why do you feel good about yourself? Why are you devastated by criticism and uplifted by encouragement? Does does everybody think about this besides me? Why is it that we're constantly thinking about ourselves in light of all this stuff going around us? Well, let me show you where that comes from, okay? Flip the page, Genesis chapter 3. What happens in Genesis chapter 3? Talk to me. The fall. Sin enters the world. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty. Of course, we know that that later on, that's uh, the serpent of old, Revelation says, uh, the the, the devil himself. He's more crafty than any other beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he, he said to the woman, indeed, now watch this, watch this, indeed, has God... I want you to see that all went wrong in creation 
when men and women began to question the word of God. You see that? Did God really say? This whole identity and image bearer and I'm in him and I'm connected to him. All that works great. As long as human beings are in relationship with him, are listening to God, are submitting to him, are buying into his authority, are depending on him. But the moment we say, did God really say? What are we doing? What are we doing? We're going outside of what God has done and said to pursue life and to pursue, as we're going to see, identity. And you know the story. Um, no, 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 no. God knows that in the day you eat from this forbidden tree, verse 5, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Now, you may have never thought about this, but, but all sorts of things are going on here. In sinning against God, rejecting his commands, the relationship we know between Adam and Eve, it's going to happen here in just a minute, that relationship between Adam and Eve and God is going to be broken. And this is going to have massive impact on identity. What happens in the fall is men and women choose autonomy versus humble reliance. They choose independence instead of dependence on God. They look for good outside of the law of God instead in keeping of the law of God. And maybe, maybe you've never thought about it this way. But in saying you can be like God by going outside of what he said, here's what men and women are saying. We can make up our own identity. We can be our own boss. We can find better good by going away from him. Now, so you need to get this. The... the the problem of the human condition as it unfolds, and you understand that there are thousands of implications here, and I'm focusing on like one of them right now, but one of them is very important. What human beings do in the fall, and all of us as Adam and Eve's children, we do this, we go outside of who God is and what he says to make up our own identity. That's what we do. And that's what Satan taught Adam and Eve to do. So on your notes there, identity is distorted in the fall. Identity is distorted in the fall. That's what we see here. We know sin separates from from God and they lost, listen, they lost the relationship with the one they were made to find identity in. You got it? If you're made to find identity in God and all of a sudden your relationship with him is broken, You're on an island of identity now, trying to figure it out on your own, trying to be your own God and make up your own identity. And as Adam and Eve quickly find, that's not as fun as it initially sounded. In fact, they're going to find that there is brokenness, there is pain, there is sorrow, there is a lack of joy. Listen, when we go outside of God to try to find identity on our own, it is an unspeakably painful and discouraging and ultimately despairing prospect. It really is. Now notice, what we see here is identity distortion, identity confusion. Notice that Adam and Eve don't stop doing identity right now. In fact, you can't stop doing identity. 
You always do identity. But since they turned away from God, now identity must come from either inside of themselves or from outside of themselves. And and this is what we see in human beings. Have you noticed this? The chronic need to create our own identity. And the chronic need to create our own identity is just an echo of what happens in this chapter. Now, we begin to see these effects. You say, Keith, I don't see identity in this chapter. It's all about sin and an apple. No, identity is in this chapter, and I will prove it to you. Because in the very next verse, after they eat, we see identity issues, right? What is the first thing the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve experience after they sin? Their eyes were opened and they realized what? And in the Hebrew way of thinking, nakedness always points to shame and guilt, doesn't it? So the Bible is saying for the first time, human beings experience what? Shame and guilt. It calls their identity. You notice this? People were made to love God and love neighbor, right? Well, what what does Adam do? He's running away from God and he's blaming his neighbor. Lord, it was the woman that you gave me that did this. Identity issues are already happening. You see that? It's the first thing that we see in this text. And that image of God in people is not lost. We know that because Genesis 9 tells us people still retain uh, somewhat of the image of God. But that image of God, that mirror, is now distorted and marred and broken. Yes, it still reflects like, but the image is fuzzy. Jeremiah 17.9 says the heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately wicked. Uh, Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7.29, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. See, they're still somewhat of the image of God, but they're sinners. They're broken images. They're marred image bearers. Now, the rest of the Bible... The rest of the Bible demonstrates the tragic reality of what happens here. Genesis 3 is the original identity crisis. It is. And you can literally read from here to the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation and find all sorts of examples of this. But can I just, can I just give you four examples of the identity problems you will see in the Bible? And I'm giving you these not so we can go, oh, that's really neat, because you will see these in your own heart. You will see these in your neighbors. You will see these in your children. You will see these in your spouse. You will see these in the people you're trying to minister to, okay? So we're just going to wave our hands. I I wish we could do a whole series on this, and it'd be great. Um, Let me just, I'm just going to, we're going to wave our hands. We're going to do the, we're going to do some fly-by examples here, okay? Uh, Drive-by biblical exposition, if we want to call it that. So notice the first way that we see this brokenness in humanity. We'll call it identity ignorance, okay? Identity ignorance. And you don't need to turn there because we don't have time to turn there and look at everything, but you know your Bible well enough to get this. Acts 17, where's Paul? He's in Athens, right? And, and he, he's uh, been delayed, and so he's waiting around, so he's like, I'm going to take in the sights in the town. And he goes and he finds all these idols, all these statues, and he finds a statue that says, it literally says, to an unknown God. And there's, you know, the, the Greek philosophers there and, and the, the pagan religious officials. And he says, um, can I ask you a question? Sure, Paul. Uh, he says, you know, I, w- I, was, I see that you're very religious. You've got these idols everywhere. And yet I found one of your idols actually said to an unknown God, can, can, I, can I put some light on that for you? What you worship in ignorance, 
I will teach you what it's really about, right? And then he, he launches in to this discussion about who God is. And, and do you notice what he says? Let me read it to you. He says, This God who created the heavens and the earth doesn't dwell in temples, but he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And, and God desires that people made by him would seek God. Perhaps they might uh, look for him and find him, though, although they, he is not far from each of us. And then he quotes one of their poets saying, you know, even, even your poets acknowledge that we are all the offspring of God. So you, you, Paul is illustrating here that fallen human beings are woefully ignorant of their, of their identity, aren't they? And what's the result? What's the outcome? Well, Paul tells us the outcome of identity ignorance is you're going to engage in false worship and idolatry if you do not know your identity. So there's one example. Another example, identity amnesia. This is where you know your identity, but you forget it, right? Identity amnesia. You're, you forget about your union. Um, and just look this up on your own time. But Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, that if you lack the qualities of spiritual growth, it's because you have become blind and short-sighted because you have forgotten your identity. You've forgotten your purification from his former sins. So identity amnesia, when you forget about your union... Now, in this context, you know, Acts 17 is about unbelievers, right? Well, Second Peter, it's talking about identity amnesia as a Christian. You forget your Christian identity. And the outcome, Paul says, is that you're useless and fruitless. So, so here's a crazy thing. Your effectiveness in, in, in ministry and your growth as a Christian depends on you remembering your identity and not forgetting it. And Paul says, if you forget your identity, you forget your union with Christ, you will be useless and fruitless. And I know none of you want to have the t-shirt that says, useless for Jesus. Right? You want to be effective. You want to be growing. You want to see people impacted by God's grace through your lives. So don't forget, don't, don't fall into identity amnesia. Here's, here's another one. <laughs> identity rebellion. Poster boy for that, Jonah. There's this little, and I know you guys are studying this, those of you taking the Bible study class, so you'll know right what I'm talking about here, okay? There's this little thing, you know the story of Jonah, right? Uh, Jonah, the prophet of God, God says, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, no, and he turns around literally 180 degrees on the compass and goes the opposite way to Tarshish. What's that? Identity rebellion. Could it be that you know your identity, you're remembering identity, but you're rebelling against it. You just don't want to do what God wants you to do as his child. So it's crazy. And that, you know, biblical narrative, biblical stories love contrasts, love irony. So you know the story. God sends the storm. He's on the boat. And, uh, and the storm's raging. And, and the, the sailors, the pagan sailors, they're casting lots. Why is this storm happening? And the lot falls on Jonah. They go to Jonah and they say, who are you? And Jonah says, like a good Sunday school student, I am a Hebrew. I serve the God who made the earth and made the heavens and made the sea. Right? The sea's raging, right? They're getting ready to, the whole thing's about ready to, to fall. And God says, oh yeah, I serve the God that's doing all this. And I'm running away from God. And the pagan sailors, this is the irony, the pagan sailors have better theology. 
than Jonah does, the prophet. They're like, what are you doing, man? How could you do this? It's identity rebellion. You know your identity. You're remembering your identity. You're turning away from it as an act of your will. Here's a third example. Identity replacement. Turn over to Romans chapter 1. I will show you this one. Are you with me? Making sense? Okay. In the fall, identity is distorted. The image of God is marred. We, we want to be our own God. We want to make up our own rules, which means we want to form our own identity. And the Bible is replete with examples of people living in identity problems, identity ignorance. We don't know our identity. Identity amnesia. We forget our identity. Identity rebellion. We're just rejecting our identity. The fourth one is identity replacement. Now, remember I told you, just because we're sinful people doesn't mean we stop worshiping, right? Just because we're sinful people doesn't mean we stop doing identity, right? The, the, the identity radar system is always latching on to how I think about myself. And if it's not based on God, it's going to be based on something else. Well, Paul tells us exactly what people do as fallen people regarding their identity. Look at Romans chapter 1 and uh, look with me at verse 25. What do fallen people do? Here's what they do. Verse 25, Romans 1. Are you there? They exchange the truth of God for a lie and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. That's what they do. So here's, here's what you do in identity. You replace God. You replace God. Instead of worshiping Him, you worship something else. It might be sports. It might be how you look. It might be a certain number on the scale. It might be performance. It might be what your retirement looks like. It might be your health. It might be any sort of thing. Because what he says here is that all fallen people are God replacers. Instead of embracing the worship of God, we look to creation, anything in creation, even a college sports team, to worship and serve and replace God and find identity in that thing. This is getting too personal. It's what we do. This is what we do. And Paul says the fundamental problem of human beings, because we're fallen, is we replace God, we worship other things, and we gain identity from those things. Now, I wish we had time to do it. We do not have time to do this. This afternoon, I put it in your notes there, Genesis 29. I'll I'll just tell you the story real quick. Um, It's Jacob. It's the story of Jacob. And you remember how Jacob, you know, he wanted to marry Rachel and then, you know, Laban tricked him into marrying the older sister, Leah, right? And, of course, Jacob didn't love Leah. He loved Rachel. And so Leah's unloved. And um, and we think, this is this is great. This is the patriarchs. These are the people of God that are going to establish the whole, you know, religion of Judaism and the, and the, the covenants. And, and, right, and it is a stinking mess is what it is. It, it is family dysfunction to the nth degree. And... We think, you know, the 12 tribes, the 12 boys that come from uh, Jacob and his wives, um, have you ever noticed their names? The names of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons, reflect the bitter rivalry between Leah and Rachel for the affection of Jacob. Did you know that? I'll, I'll prove it to you. You don't need to turn there. Just listen. Um... What's the first, what's the first uh, boy that's born? Reuben, right? What does Reuben mean? What's his name mean? It literally means, see a son. 
And the text says this, my husband will love me because I bore him a son. So she names his kid, her kid, see a boy, love me now. You get it? Okay, well how we do a number two? Simeon, it's related to the, to the, the fact that she was unloved. She's focusing on being unloved. And she has a second son for her husband as if she's saying, honey, God is listening to me. Maybe you should too. I got two boys now. Now will you love me? Levi, what does that mean? His name means joined or attached. I've got three sons for Jacob. Surely my husband will be attached to me now. Surely he will want to join himself to me and love me. Do you see what's going on? She's naming her kids in light of her idolatry that her only identity is found in a husband that loves her. You get that? I, I wish I could, it's profound. And then Rachel gets involved, and then the maids get involved, you know, Bilhah and, and uh, what's the other one? Um, uh, anyway, the, the other maids get involved, and, and I, you literally go through all 12 of the names. It, the, the, the names of the boys recount the rivalry. They, they catalog the rivalry of identity fighting over the love of a husband. I mean, this is a mess. And Romans tells us when you turn away from God and worship other things and gain your identity from those things, what happens? Look at the end of Romans chapter 1. What happens? Being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil and full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice, gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, and on and on and on and on. Every wicked thing possible comes because of the false worship of fallen people and the fallen identities that they gain from it. You ready for this? Humanity is a mess because of an identity problem. Humanity is a mess because of a worship disorder. And in fact, your struggles and my struggles are really just symptoms, right, of what's going on here, that we were made for God for a relationship and identity with Him. Listen, as children of Adam and Eve, fallen human beings don't have an identity crisis They are an identity crisis. Disconnected from God, we are distorted image bearers, desperately seeking both to look inward and outward for meaning, purpose, and identity. And what we need, friends, is an identity rescuer. And his name is Jesus. I don't need to do this because Pastor Terry has... I asked Pastor Terry, can I do Romans 6? And he says, oh, it's been a year since I've been in Romans 6, so that's fair game, okay? So I, I did ask... Um, so let, let's look at this now, okay, guys? How does union with Christ affect identity? Here, here's, my, here's my premise. Identity is transformed by Christ's work of redemption. Our identity is transformed by Christ's work of redemption, okay? What did God do to help? What did the rescuer, the identity rescuer do? Well, God in eternity past made a plan for his people to be united to his son. And then what? In the course of time, the Bible says the man, the, uh, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under a law. The, the, the first thing that the identity rescuer had to do, you ready for this? Was establish an identity with human beings. The Son of God, fully God, eternally God, took on a second nature and became a man. 
say, well, why would he do that? If he is going to rescue us from this mess, he had to become like us. Hebrews tells us, right? He had to be tempted in all things as we are. He had to be human to stand in our place, to be our substitute, to be the one who, who would, who would, in a sense, earn righteousness on our behalf and then bear the penalty for our sin. And so Jesus comes, he lives a perfect life, he dies a death of substitution, he rises from the dead in order to reconcile sinful people back to God so that the image of God in them may be restored and transformed and that people once again might reflect his glory in identity found in him. And I think that pretty much sums up Romans 1 to 5. Okay, so let's look at 6. But for Christ's work to make a difference, listen very closely, for Christ's work to make a difference in the lives of people, they must somehow be connected to him. The fact that Jesus came and he lived and he died and he rose again will not help you one iota unless somehow you can be connected to him. Listen to Calvin again. We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from Him, all that He has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. All that Christ possesses is nothing to us until we grow into one body with Him. And that's the argument of Romans, is that Jesus has come, and how can you be connected to Jesus? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's how you do it. Okay? It's going to happen through union with Christ. Listen to John Murray. Union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. All to which the people of God have been predestined in the eternal election of God, all that has been secured and procured for them in the once for all accomplishment of redemption and all of which they become actual partakers in the application of redemption and all that by God's grace they will become in the state of consummated bliss is embraced within the compass of union and communion with Christ. Guys, union with Christ is the theological nerve center of your Christian life. That's what Murray is saying. Everything about our salvation, everything about what Christ has done comes to us through connection with him. So I want, I want you to see six ways that that happens. Six ways that union with Christ transforms identity. Okay, so we're in Romans 6 now. Flip over there if you're not there. See, we finally got there. That was all introduction. But, but guys, I hope that's not a waste of time because what Romans 6 is going to say will make no sense if you don't understand the broader context of what we just talked about. Okay, It doesn't make any sense without the context. So, so here we go. Romans 6. And I, I set this up earlier. You know he's, he's responding to a rhetorical question. Shall we continue in sin? Grace may increase. May it never be. Here's the question. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, We've died to sin. So here's his argument. Number one, the first way that your union with Christ transforms identity is this. You have a new relationship with him. A new relationship. Look at verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Okay? So... Don't get stuck here on baptism because in Paul's mind, 
baptism here is just illustrating the whole conversion process. What he's saying is, when you came to Christ in your conversion, when you trusted him by faith alone in salvation, you were united to Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. You say, well, why didn't he just say that? He said that, he's using baptism instead of saying all that because baptism pictures that reality. So let let me illustrate for you. I will not jump in, but I will show you. We fill this thing up, right? We take a person who's just trusted Christ and we dunk him under the water. We bring him out. Why do we do that? Because it illustrates the spiritual realities of what happens when a person trusts Christ. When they trust Christ and are united to him, they participate with Christ in his death, in his crucifixion. That's what it says here. That's the picture of them going under the water. They're dying. Okay, then they're under the water. That's a picture of them identified with Christ in his burial. That's what it says here. And then we don't leave them under there. We pull them back up. And they're raised to walk in newness of life, illustrating their connection with Jesus in his resurrection. You get it? Baptism is a physical picture of the spiritual reality of what happens when you're united to Jesus. And because of that, Paul says you have a new relationship with him. Notice the language in Romans 6. You are united into Christ. You are with Christ, verse 8. You are with Him, verses 4, 5, 6, and 8. You are in Christ Jesus, verses 11 and 23. Ninety times in the New Testament, you will see that little phrase, in Christ. And when you see that, I want you to remember this. That's code language for union with Him. Okay? Code language for Him. In fact, this new relationship with Christ is multifaceted. Let me just... Let me just give you the flyover. We are new creatures. The old things have passed away. 2 Corinthians 5.17 We are alive in Him, though we were formerly dead in sin. Ephesians 2.5 We were once an enemy, and now we're a reconciled friend. Romans 5.10 We were separated and alienated, and now we are restored in fellowship. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 We were once rejected, but now we are accepted in Christ. Romans chapter 15, verse 7 We were guilty before God. Now we are justified, forgiven, and pronounced by God not guilty. Romans 3.21. We were children by nature, deserving wrath, and now we are beloved and adopted into the family of God. Romans chapter 8. Those are all of the realities that happen in this new relationship with Christ. Paul sums it up in Galatians chapter 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and therefore it is no longer I who live, but what? Christ who lives in me. That's identity language, isn't it? It's relationship. It's And notice this. Your identity is not Jesus becoming a cosmic cheerleader and saying, you're great, and I love you, and you should love you, and you're awesome. And Did you notice the violence of this new relationship? This is not extreme humanity makeover here. This is not some sort of, you know, human renovation project. No, no. You are so wicked and I am so wicked that no renovation is possible. The only way to fix this is you die. We die with Christ. Our old self dies. And then He creates us a new creature. He starts over in all of this. We're raised to walk in newness of life. Trusting in Jesus is not some Christian version of finding yourself. It is dying to yourself to to find identity in Jesus alone. That's number one. Number two, we have a new ability. A new ability. Look at verse 5. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, here's what I want you to see. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with 
so that we would no longer be slaves to sin because the one who died is free from sin. Paul, you know, in, in the, in the, in the work of redemption, there are different pictures that are borrowed, right? The picture that Paul wants us to think about here is the reality of sin being bondage. It's slavery. Uh, Jesus said in John 8, the one who commits sin is actually a slave of sin. So, so notice the language. It's slavery language. Sin is your master. You are a slave to it. You are bound to it. You don't have any rights. You don't have any freedom. You just do what your master says to do, which means you get up in the morning as a fallen person, and what do you do? You sin. You want to change? Too bad. You're not the master. You're just the slave. You follow that. It's, it's like this giant, you know, 3,000 pound iron ball that's chained to your leg and you just, you just carry that thing around all over the place. You are bound to your sin and there's nothing you can do to change it. And Paul says here, when you come to Christ in union with Him by grace through faith, what happens? You're freed. <laughs> You're, that chain is broken. You don't have to sin anymore. You can say no to your sin. You can say, I'm not going to obey that temptation today. Because you're one with Jesus. Because you've been connected to Him. You've, you've been freed. You're no longer a slave. And that brings this new ability. You can say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Now there's a theological word for that. When Jesus frees you from the slavery of sin, it is called your redemption. That's what that word means. Redemption means you're freed from the bondage and slavery of sin. He says in verses 8 to 10, Christ is never going to do this again, right? He died once for all. He rose once for all. And here's what that means. Listen very closely. Christ's work is sufficient. You need to get this. My identity is based on his completed and finished work, not on your performance. Now, I'm going to say that again because some of you need to hear this. I need to hear this. Your identity in Christ is based on the finished, completed, once and for all work of Jesus, not on what kind of day you're having, not how faithful you are, not on your performance. Those things are important. It's not what they base your identity on. Will you be encouraged in that? Who you are is based on who he is, and his work is done and completed. Number three, we have a new purpose. Look at verse 11. A new purpose. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't go on letting sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, and don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members of instruments of unrighteousness to God. Here's what he says. If you're a new creature, if you're no longer a slave, if you're united to Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection... Start living like it. You don't have to live the way you've always lived. You know, your, your, your life, your body, your talents, your abilities are really good at sinning because that's what we sinners do, right? We're, we're really sophisticated sinners. And then Christ comes in and this changes and Paul says, now you can change. You don't have to keep doing that thing over and over and over again because it's what you always done. You can change. In fact, he's going to call you to. In light of your new identity, take your members, take your body, take your life. It just means all of you. And now live for righteousness. Live for him. Don't live for sin anymore. 
And, and the Bible comes at this in all sorts of ways. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says, We make it our aim, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, right? Romans 12, 1 says, You get up in the morning, and in light of what Jesus has done, you present your body as a living sacrifice to Him. Your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price, Paul says, therefore glorify God in your body in light of that new identity. You have a new purpose. When people sit around going, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know what meaning is. You don't need to figure that out. Jesus tells you what your purpose is. So draw near to him, listen to him, and then go do it. Go do it. Number four, you have a new position, a new position. Look at verse 14. You are not under law, but you are under grace, right? Sin shall not be master over you anymore well, what's he doing here he's looking backward to romans chapter 3 really and he's saying remember that law thing you couldn't keep the law right it condemns us right we can't keep the law it condemns our activity no one can do it so jesus comes and what does he do he comes as the god man as our substitute and he lives that perfect life in obedience to the law that we should have lived and then as we connect to him paul's going to say what we die to the law Our old self dies. So we are not condemned by the law. We're not under the law because Jesus fulfills it. And as we come to him in trusting, repentant faith, he justifies us. That's what's really going on here. Justifying is saying the law is no longer your master. You are not guilty because of the finished work of Jesus who justifies you and forgives you. Jesus fulfills the law and he justifies. And think about this. How much of our identity struggles come from things like these? Guilt. Condemnation. Failure. Not measuring up. Feeling like you can't be good enough. Perfectionism. All of those get crucified when you trust in Jesus and are united to him. Because it's not based on your performance. It's not based on the law. You died to the law. Jesus has completed the law. You are one in him. You're not guilty. And that leads, fifthly, to a new transformation. This is all about sanctification. And you know this. This is all about sanctification. He says, what then? Verse 15, shall we sin because we're not under the law? May it never be. And then he goes on to describe this process that he's just said. Paul's repeating himself. You wonder why preachers repeat themselves? Because Paul repeats himself. Bible writers repeat themselves. But what's he saying? He's saying, what is the outcome? What is the result of you not living the way you used to, but now living in light of your new identity, living like you're not a slave and you're free? In fact, he's going to say here, you're actually a slave to righteousness. You're a slave to God now. What is the outcome of that? Look at verse, uh, the end of the verse there. He says, the outcome of these things is that it results in sanctification sanctification is growing into, in a practical way, the image that God has gave, given us. It's, it's rooted in God as making us as an image bearer. Now remember, in the fall, that image is distorted, right? As we grow to be more like Christ, as we grow in sanctification, as we learn to live in light of our new identity, what happens? That image gets transformed and restored. In fact, Paul describes this in 2 Corinthians as we are conformed into the image of Christ from glory to glory. And he's going to say on the page over from here, chapter 8, verse 29, that God actually predestined us to be conformed to the image 
of his son. So the restoration and the transformation of the image is what happens because we have new transformation in our new identity in him. One more, one more. We have a new future. Look at verse 20. Verse 20, a new one. Uh, or the last one here. We have a new future. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? The outcome of those things is death. Paul reminds us one more time, what happens when you live alienated from God, making up your own identities? You die in that condition. You die separated from God. You die with your own identity. And listen to me, the only identity that lasts eternally is your identity in Christ. So if you die with anything other than that one, it's judgment. And Paul says, I've got good news for you. But now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification. There it is again. And the outcome, what is it? Eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, union with Jesus means we have a secure, eternal future. And you know what? Cancer may defeat you. It might. Life may be hard and full of disappointments. Dreams may not be realized. Brokenness in a fallen world may be a daily source of fear, and you may be overwhelmed by that. But listen to this. You can never lose Jesus. You are secure in Him. Your future is settled, which means you will never lose your true identity if you're in Him. Paul is so excited about this, he ends his whole section in Romans 8 with this thought. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, this is really good, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, angels nor principalities, things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, which is code language for what? Union with Christ. Listen to John Piper. Christian selfhood is not defined in terms of who we are in and of ourselves. It is defined in terms of what God does to us, the relationship he creates with us, and the destiny he appoints for us. God made us who we are so we could make known who he is. Our identity is for the sake of making known his identity. You got it? Because we're image bearers, right? Union with Christ is the lens of Christian identity. So you must know Jesus. You must look to Jesus. You must look through Jesus in order to see yourself rightly. And if Jesus is for you, you are eternally secure in Him. He is yours forever. And whatever's going on in your life today, I can tell you this. All is well. And all will always be well because you are united forever to Him. All right, let's pray.
Father, thank you for this reminder of these great truths. Would you give us grace to live in light of our identity in Christ? We pray in his name. Amen.